0: starts. Hello Howard, it's Dan. Oh, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you, and um, hello listeners. Welcome. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, and if you've heard us before, then welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. This is a podcast that talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we like to think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about, just because that's who we are. Our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror text comes from a creative or an academic perspective. But be warned, we do tend to swear sometimes, and if it's anything less offensive than the C word, it won't get bleeped. So... If you are lucky enough to still be going into your workplace at this time, we're probably not safe for it. In this episode, we are going to be talking to the author of some of our very best nightmares, the acclaimed screenwriter and novelist Stephen Volk. He'll be talking about his new book, Under a Raven's Wing, which is available to order right now, and there'll be a link that you can use in the show notes for this episode. He'll also be discussing the rest of his really rather remarkable career in Hollywood, in British screenwriting, uh, in prose writing and and uh, writing for other mediums but always in the genre of horror. We love him very much and that's going to be very exciting. Uh, I'm Dan, uh, my full name is TD Velasquez but you can call me Dan, I'm in Greater Manchester and for that chat with Stephen Volk I'm going to be joined by our usual muckers Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire, Stella Gaynor in Manchester, and Ian Winterton in Cheshire. But for right now, I am absolutely delighted to be joined on the phone, also from Shropshire, by the wonderful Howard Whittock. How are you doing, Uh, Howard? You're too kind, but yes, I am fairly wonderful. Yes, I'm fine, yes. Yes. I'm okay, yes. Um very happy. Um You you're on the podcast every week doing a bag of death, but you know, it's kinda of rare that we, we get to hear kind of almost contemporary from you. So, um, for the listeners, how's life been for the last few weeks and and how's it looking for the foreseeable future? Well, it's been
1: it's been all right. I mean I, I'm um, I think we're sort of, I mean, it's been very strange, this last lockdown, I think, because, um, because it's been happening in the winter. It's felt much more claustrophobic. Last spring, when we were doing it the first time, when it was all new, when we didn't quite know what was going on, uh, the weather was lovely. And you could sit outside and watch the butterflies and the birds and the clouds, because I'm very interested in clouds, I think they're amazing, uh, <laughs> and sit in the sunshine and absorb all the vitamin D and all that sort of thing. Um, but this one now, because January and February are always a really depressing time of year anyway, because the weather's bad and everybody's ill and you've just had the Christmas and you've got the post-Christmas slump and everything like that. Uh, and having a lockdown as well, it's sort of just, it's all felt a bit claustrophobic, but but necessary, of course. But now, now we are moving closer. Now the vaccination's are happening. We are moving closer to that light at the end of the tunnel. And soon, soon, this whole wretched thing will be over. Just got to be careful for the next few months. But I, there is, there is an end to it. That's entirely down to the brilliance and the expertise of the scientists because I'm a great believer in science, me and Brian Cox you know, we believe in science and physics and all these incredibly clever people working in their laboratories making this va- this vaccine that will um
0: <laughs> Howard why are you not the Prime Minister? Because despite the, the a couple of erms towards the end, that was so much more convincing than and optimistic than anything I've heard out of a government person for so long. And God bless you.
1: Yeah, but if you've seen the government we've got, you know, then um, we've we've come through this despite them rather than because of them. Although I do have to say, yes, the vaccination programme is proceeding apace and credit where credit's due. No, it's it's great, yeah. Yes, um... I bought a blood pressure monitor. So that's a bit, uh, bit of a blood pressure problem. But everything is fine. I'm I'm still trying to learn. I'm, I'm relearning, or learning, or relearning, or a lot of Shakespeare's classic speeches. All right. Uh, I want to learn all the speeches in their entirety that Vincent Price does in of Blood*.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Or relearn some of the Shakespearean speeches that I've done during my very long a not-particularly-distinguished theatrical career, so... Um, I think
0: illustrious is the word you were looking for there, Howard.
1: Right. But... <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so it's uh, friends, Romans, countrymen, and all that, and, and if you want to get the old mind working, you see, and uh, learning poetry as well, so I've kind of starting falling in love with poetry, which is uh, nothing I've very interested in before, but now I've, I've got this book and I'm learning all about... Um, Shelley and um, William Blake and wow. Stevie Smith, that's a good one, Not Waiting but Drowning.
0: Oh yes, yes, Stevie Smith, yeah, all good stuff, all my favourites. Well, as I, I think our listeners um, may be aware, um, one of my side jobs is teaching English, so I, I do work with, with those kind of writers and, and, and try to introduce uh, young people to them some other time. And, uh, yeah, it's a great field to kind of emerge, and it's great for your mental health.
1: It's great great to know those things. And and first of all, people think you're very, very erudite, if you can just drop a few quotes in, sort of, in the conversation. Oh,
0: yeah. Brush up your Shakespeare, (laughs) Howard. And I've also been watching a load of classic films, which I've
1: never seen before, and I finally joined, because there's nothing else to do, things like Music on the Bounty with Charles Lawton and Clark Gable, which is absolutely terrific, and... um, the searchers I watched not long ago, western. I'm just getting into westerns now. Kind of like those. And again, watching uh, a lot of comedy, of course. Um, so, oh, I'm just, I'm just watching. I just bought from a charity shop because I get everything from charity shops. Series two of the Legal Gentleman.
0: Oh, excellent! A little um, bit of British yeah. comedy horror, there. Yeah.
1: Well, um, which is, it's uh, you know, it's hard to believe it's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. and in a way, I wouldn't say it was disappointing. It's good, but because we've had so much stuff since. At the time, that seemed all so new and fresh and extraordinary. And now, kind of, the novelty's sort of dropped off a bit. It's not... It's good. I really like it, but it's not quite as...
2: You know, it's, it, it's sort of... I,
0: I think Series 2 was always the low point. Um, it You know, we don't want to go into too much detail, because it's not really our topic area, but... The, the the first series of, of League of Gentlemen was such an exciting combination of comedy and horror and Britishness and all the um, kind of unique elements and it felt great. And the third series where they deliberately kind of changed the format and made it more of an anthology series was also great. I thought the second series had a little bit of a sense of not knowing what to do with it.
1: It's the difficult second album syndrome, isn't it? Where do you go? How how much do you keep from the first series, and how much do you change and stuff? So, yeah. but it is good. It's very clever, and so, you know there's some really funny bits in it. So I'm watching that, and of course I watch Alan Partridge, and I watch um, Porridge, and all these comedy things that I love. So that keeps me going.
2: Oh
0: yes, and I remember th- that uh, one of your recommendations from last year was uh, this time with Alan Partridge, wasn't it? Which I never saw at the time, but it's now on BritBox so it's i'm not, gonna it's
1: not the best alan partridge series i think that's probably i'm alan partridge the sitcom right the first series where he's in the travel tavern
2: yeah oh and yeah in
1: that and that. um so yeah but all partridge is great so all partridge is hilarious
0: and on that note we will move on because obviously you know we we love it and we but this is not a comedy podcast um oh, except it's... accidentally um but I'm so glad you're here and you and I are going to be looking into the bag of death later on today uh, oh, in this episode. Yeah, so um, so what's going to happen now is we are going to let the recording of the interview with uh, Stephen Volk do the talking for us. We're going to move over to that and the listeners will hear Ian and Kirsty and Stella and myself discussing with Stephen his remarkable career. And then after that, you and I, Howard, will be back to delve into the bag of death and find something unexpected. So I'll see you there. I'll see you. So here we are. We're going to be talking to a man who's been frightening us in many different media, on uh, TV screens, uh, movie screens, in prose fiction, in audio drama, for about 35 years-ish. Um, and he's also directly responsible for traumatizing, I think, every single host on this podcast <laughs> in 1992 when he wrote the legendary <laughs> broadcast Ghost Watch. Stephen Volk, welcome to And Now the Podcast Arts and thank you so much for joining us.
3: That's great. Thank you for inviting me.
0: It's our pleasure and our honor. So, you have an amazingly storied career. Um, we mentioned ghost watch that's just one of many highlights um and you came to writing uh, quite late really didn't you i don't think it was your initial goal in life was to become a
3: writer well it depends how back you want to go in a sense uh, i mean in school um, i wrote stories and that kind of thing into my teens it wasn't with the thought of becoming a professional writer. That was so. That was a kind of myth or dream on the par with a kind of polka dotted unicorn. You know, it was so outlandish. Um, but I, I just enjoyed putting words to paper and dreaming up stories. But I really was uh, drawing all the time too. So my my path really was to art school um, with the idea to become a graphic designer or an illustrator. Not really sure about what to do. But I was writing the whole time and I ended up in art college. And at the third year of art college, I, I went into the film department because I didn't really realise that you could specialise in film. So I made animation films. Uh, and subsequent to that, I ended up in film school in as a postgraduate course in Bristol. So here I was in a film school, coming from an art school background, with a whole pile of writing, not really, not published writing, but kind of half-hearted scripts or radio scripts that kind of thing and I didn't really know what to do or what my trajectory was and one of my tutors was a guy called Bill Stair. this was in Bristol University Department of Drama and he was not only a scriptwriter but an art director and his great partnership was with the director John Borman he worked on Point Blank and uh, Deliverance and films like that wow storyboarding and you know being a consultant a a kind of visual consultant as well as helping on the script and i i was a bit um of a split personality i didn't really know whether i was a writer or an art director or what and i sat down with him one day and i said look i've got these all these things i've been writing over the years and i've also got i like storyboarding i like illustrating i like designing book covers um what you know what am i what am i supposed to do and he said he said it's very clear to me that you're not doing two different things you're doing one thing which is that you're kind of screenwriting because you're you're storytelling visually all your all your visuals are kind of narrative and all your narratives are visual so he said it's not two things it's one thing and that that was a great moment of kind of clarity so i uh of course i didn't leap from that into being a a, a freelance storyteller and being paid for my writing that was a long time ahead, but. Uh, at the end of that course in Bristol university we sat around wondering what we we're going to do with our lives, and somebody said well if you move up to london there are these things called copywriters and you can become a copywriter in an advertising agency and get a typewriter and be paid you know get a brief in the morning for i don't know the egg marketing board or um, air <laughs> canada or whatever it was many things i worked on um you get a job in advertising and and they pay you to write i thought this sounded good so i sent off I think a hundred application forms to agencies in London. I got three interviews and one job offer, which was at Ogilvy and Mather. And when I ended up there, uh, I sat down at the desk, and in the top drawer of the desk was um, Salman Rushdie's first book. He'd been he'd just left, and he left his book in the top drawer. <laughs> uh, so that was the start of my career in advertising, such that it was, and that went on for ten years or so. Um, so that um, was a nine to five job, and I wrote. I was writing my own scripts in the evening, basically uh, burning the midnight oil. Wow,
0: the way it's meant to be done. I
3: was <laughs>
4: going to say Salman Rushdie, and I think Faye Weldon as well, wasn't it? She's yeah, famously yeah. who, who did go to campaign. work on an egg? Was that That's right? Yes, yeah, she worked on that. I think she wrote that yeah. one. Yeah. No, yeah,
3: I, didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I worked on. I worked on some of the road safety campaigns, though the Green Cross man. You know, with David Prowse. uh... Wow, you scripted David Prowse. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote him that and met him. Very nice, very nice chap, too. Yeah.
0: Oh, I I I was going to say working with Ken Russell is an auspicious start to a career, but working (laughs) with Dave Prowse
2: (laughs) is really an auspicious start (laughs) to a career.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, both. I kind of, Ken is a kind of bet noir, isn't he? Or Enfant terrible, I'm not sure which, but I'm not sure the French for David Prowse. (laughs) I'm sure I'll think of something
0: We need to coin it
4: Um, I'm I'm Garçon Solide (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Uh, I love love Derek Cross In a way the Ken Russell stuff happened um, that follows straight on from me burning the midnight oil in a way because I had a flat which I shared with two other guys in Stoke Newington and I'd come home from my job and start writing stuff dreaming up crazy things and one of them was the script for Gothic uh, I never thought about who was going to direct it. It was just like in those days, I would write a script always on spec because no one was paying me, uh, you know, and literally stick it in an envelope, lick it down, stick a stamp on it, send it off, start work on the next one. And I was quite, it was quite a Protestant work ethic in a way because I was just determined to kind of try and get somewhere, really. So it was always a joy when someone showed some interest. Um, but it was a good few years of that happening before um, I found an agent, which which happened through a connection I had in advertising with a director called Richard Longcrane, who, um, oh, amongst other things, around the time I knew him, he did a, a film, Brimstone and Treacle, with uh, Sting. in the Oh, yes. Dennis and, Potter's play. Dennis Potter's the play. But the, the, the feature film was with Sting playing the devil or... A crazy person depending how you look at it um great film i think and great great play um, i'm a very big dennis potter fan so that was someone that was really interesting to me dennis potter fleetingly but anyway that's how i got my agent and um and
2: uh,
3: i always say to young writers uh you know beaver away so that when a moment of luck comes along you're not standing there like a prune with nothing under your arm i had at least three finished screenplays under my arm when I was lucky enough mm-hmm. to be introduced to my agent, which I'm talking about, about 1983, 1984. Um, and I was able to give her three scripts and talk about lots of other ideas and also tell her near misses of meetings I almost got through my own devices of sending stuff off. So I, I always say, if you know, luck happens, but you have mm-hmm. to be prepared when that luck happens to actually make something of it. You know, that's my... That's my creed occur to young writers. So anyway, she I, I remember what she said when we went to lunch and she took me on and I told her what I'd done. She said, um, yeah, I can tell you're in this for the long haul. And I always tell that to writers because sometimes I think young writers think, if I I did one work of absolute genius, my career would be would be on, on track, you know. And it's not about <laughs> a career on track with one piece of work. You've got to show that you're going to work at it and work at it and work at it. And that's what the agent wants to hear. They don't want to invest time in someone that's a one-hit wonder or Mm -hmm. a one not-even-hit wonder. They want someone that's going to keep at it. So that's the other story Mm. that I tell really. But one of those scripts was Gothic, and she sent it to Virgin Films. Uh, I had a few meetings with Virgin Films. Uh, Al Clark was the head of production. And a guy called Robert Devereaux, I think, was heading it up. Um, And they kind of it away I did some tweaks on it as you always do and then it went quiet for about two years I never heard anything I was literally expected every day to get the phone call that they found a director and then one day I was in my uh, in the uh, creative department in Ogilvy and Mather and with my art director sitting opposite me and um, I got the phone call from Al Clark and he said we found a director for you and he wants to do it and it's Ken Russell bearing in mind this was 1984 or something, 85. And I put the phone down and I said to my art director, if you'd written a film, who would you least want to direct it?
2: <laughs> and
3: he said, um, Michael Winner. <laughs> and I said, uh, "I said second choice. And he said, Ken Russell. <laughs> but anyway, so, so Ken at that stage, even though he directed some of my favourite films of all time, was a bit on the cusp of, not knowing where he was, was he in the states was he here was he was he going in the mainstream? was he going in the cult direction so he's been of an unknown quantity much as he was he he was a vet noir or still um but basically he was he was great he was on board, and he 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 uttered those magic words, "I want to make this in in may and this was like <laughs> december so there's no farting around with mm. script development or anything you know that's the wonder of having a director that knows what they want he knew he wanted to make it and he wanted to get on with it you know so so there was it wasn't interminable script development yeah
4: my um my my i was speaking to my dad on the phone today because i know he works he was assistant film editor on ken russell's rossetti film um and he's always taught he's always regaled us with stories of of uh his time with ken russell that he said he's a very talented, but had a terrible temper, and he could never say thank you. Was what how my dad described him.
3: And well, the, also... latter, the, the latter bit, I think, applies to every director I've ever met.
4: Um, <laughs> yeah, um... I mean, he, he said, he said, he said. Uh, I, don't, don't, I mean, you, you said you were a fan of Ken Russell. Did you? Does that like, go back to his Elgar and his Rossetti, and,
3: and uh, those... not so much as I mean, when I was in art school, we were we were all obsessed by Tommy. We used to to go and watch Tommy non-stop, but I think that the film that, one of the films, pivotal films that really changed how I thought about cinema was The Devils, to be perfectly honest. I've never seen a historical film that kind of took you by the throat as much as that did. And I think it still still does, to be honest. I mean, partly, you know, the Mm -hmm. contribution of Derek Jarman doing those wonderful sets and, you know, Oliver Reed, you know, his Mm -hmm. best most amazing performance but and also the underlying material which is so evocative and insane um Mm -hmm. and um you know so it is one of my it was one of my favorite favorite films but um i didn't really know what kind of director he was after he came off crimes of passion um i wasn't sure what i would be getting really but he was he was absolutely he never lost his temper with me uh the most i got it i did get it once in the neck when I think Gabriel Burner, one of the actors, kind of sidled up to me as actors do and said, would you mind if we change this line? Um, and being naive, it was my first film, obviously. I, I said, yeah, that's fine. And you know, I know now, know now to my cost that one should never do that without the director being present. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, And I learned that to my, uh, to my cost, but it was yeah. a valuable lesson.
4: Yeah, he's a force of nature by all accounts. There's a great, there's a great quote from uh, Julian Sands, um, who also just worked with um, James Ivory on a Room of View. Just before, I think, just before he'd been on. Yeah, yeah
3: almost immediately. And he and he oh, yeah. says,
4: "James Ivory is an ornithologist watching his subjects with a pair of binoculars from afar, whereas Ken Russell is a big game hunter filming in the middle of a rhino charge." <laughs>
3: Which, uh, he's, also, he's also a rhino filming the rhino yeah as well. yeah,
4: yeah no no uh, the
3: funny thing is i turned up at this at the set once and uh there was a it was about eight o'clock in the morning and ken took me to one side asked me if i wanted some champagne <laughs> and uh, i said no it's a bit early, it's a bit early for me and he said oh, it's a bit late for me <laughs> and i actually used those two lines in the, in the first episode of afterlife when I. Those two exact lines. Uh, <laughs> oh,
0: I thought it sounded
3: familiar.
4: Yeah, I just I just rewatched Afterlife, and uh, um, yeah, so I remember that. <laughs> I thought that <laughs> was sounding familiar.
3: <laughs> well, that's what it's from.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So, so after after Gothic, you you sort of do, would you say you go into a sort of Hollywood period for the next two movies? Um,
3: well, it was one of the, it was uh, the kind of received wisdom in those days was. Um, get the next gig before your film comes out. <laughs> there's, there's an obvious logic to that because there's a heat before something comes out and then the heat goes off, the food, so to speak, uh, afterwards. And I, I remember before the film came out, <coughs> I had some meetings with producers that came over from the States, one of which was a guy called Jeff Sagansky from Tri- who who's the head of TriStar Pictures. And I remember meeting him in the Ritz. Um, it was one of those ridiculous things where I came in without a tie <laughs> and the the man at the door gave me a tie to put round my neck and then <laughs> took us in, set us at the table, I took off the tie. Absolute <laughs> nonsense, this country is sometimes. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I remember being halfway through the cup of tea and Jeff Zaganski said, oh, me and the guys, uh, meaning the other executives, we were thinking, we've got this idea about this guy, he loses his wife, the, the auntie turns up and the auntie is a witch and the auntie's got these evil evil eyes on the daughter who she also wants to turn into a witch do you want to write it it was literally like that and i thought bing career yeah <laughs> okay i'll um i'll have a go at that um and uh, you know it was a purely a, a, a career move really to get a studio gig and i i did that and um uh, of course it wasn't plain sailing it got rewritten it got made eventually in in canada it's called the kiss. I remember I worked with Pendentium, the director, on another script at TriStar. And I was in his office when he got the green light for the kiss. Uh, and he left our meeting and he went to his um assistant and said, Oh, could you order three bottles of champagne? He said. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to the hotel tonight and there'll be a bottle of champagne. What a nice what a nice thought for him to send me, the original writer of the film he's about to make a bottle of champagne anyway i get back to the hotel at the end of the day no champagne (laughs) the champagne went to his agent his manager and uh, his lawyer (laughs) that's and i thought yeah that's hollywood yeah Yeah,
4: that's the writer
3: yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. exactly
4: yeah so so after after the kiss we have the guardian which um which was William Friedkin, and...
3: That wasn't really immediately after. I mean, I, I kind no. of, in that period, kind of alternated between things in the States, kind of jobs that came over that never saw the light of day, mostly, and yeah. jobs here, which were things that came to me, like, for instance, uh, an adaptation of James Herbert's Haunted was something the BBC wanted to do that I mm. worked on, and then that never happened. So there were things like that. There was another series someone wanted to get off the ground that being created by Nigel Neal. Kind of um, investigative pre X Files kind of series, so I kind of dallied oh with God. certain things like that, that never never came off. Wow. But also did things from that came from the states. Um, so, St-
0: a, sorry, Stephen, are you saying yeah. that the, if that had been made, there would have been a series which had Nigel Neal's name and Stephen Volk's name on the credits?
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, but I mean, partly he didn't like what I did, so uh, <laughs> oh, I, can't claim, I can't claim any g- kind of wondrous uh, symbiosis there. The uh, <laughs> <into> reality <laughs> of a
4: writer's life, because isn't it isn't it right that the Stone Tape is one of like the big influences on the early absolutely,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you absolutely definitely. Uh, so you that
4: you end up getting bad notes off Nigel Neil. <laughs> <me?
3: laughs> one of the things I also worked on at that period was um, uh, a script. Uh, called superstition, which was based on a true story about a, a, a nanny called Carol Compton, who went to work in Italy, uh, and these mysterious fires started happening in the houses that she worked in. And um, uh, I'm not sure the the, the the I don't think the children she was responsible for got injured in any way, but but these strange fires broke out and she was accused of attempted murder and locked up in an Italian jail. And the whole media frenzy got a hold of it. She was called the Scottish witch, you know, and there's a lot of superstition swirling around it, which is why I I called the film Superstition. It was kind and I saw it as a kind of, like the crucible, really, as something that wasn't a superstition, it wasn't a supernatural film, but it was about feeling, you know, people's uh, uh, fears about the supernatural, really, and someone innocent. Um, stuck in the situation. And I kind of met her and researched it. I went to Italy and got all the legal documents, got them translated, you know. So that was all underway. Uh, and strangely enough, this other book came up about a nanny called The Nanny by Dan Greenberg. And that was sent to me by a producer called Joe Wizan. Um, and uh, Sam Raimi was attached to it. And as director, um, Dan Greenberg had written a draft which um, pretty much stuck to the book. So had the kind of thoughts that they saw in the book um, inscribed in the script that they had. Um, and I got approached to do a rewrite. And, you know, it was literally the prospect of working with Sam Raimi that attracted me more than the underlying material. So I kind of worked with him a little bit on the phone and then went to the States. I remember being in Sam Raimi's house when there was an earthquake, that was fun. <laughs> all the dogs started howling before the earthquake happened that was quite strange uh. and then and then the floor shook uh, and then uh, and then what happened was that sam raimi went off to make dark man that's how long ago it was with liam neeson uh and joe was and phoned up and said we've got new director uh, william Friedkin." and i thought how the hell i mean what we'd what i'd written with sam raimi was a horror comedy." And now they've got the least comedic horror director <laughs> you could imagine. And I thought, what is going to happen? And, of course, I know now, you know, for my sins, that when a when a um, producer says, you know, he loves the script, he's only got a few changes, you know, that's the time to say, bye, see you later. <laughs> it's never true, never, ever true. So I got on a plane and went out there and met, Bill Friedkin started working with him and uh, what the producer said would be a one or two week job turned into 12 weeks and it wasn't anywhere near finished. We didn't know what we were doing. We were, he was interviewing people for the part of the nanny and we didn't even know who the nanny was. I mean, we had really good actresses like Uma Thurman Mm -hmm. straight before uh, Dangerous Liaison and... She came in and said, so what's my part? And it was like, we looked at each other. Why am I, why am I kidnapping babies? I didn't have the faintest idea, because we kept, we kept changing the backstory, you know, and, and it was just crazy, absolutely crazy. It kind of drove me around the bend a little bit. The, the, the peak point of my madness on that film was I would, I would beaver away, we'd have long chats during the day, and then at about four o'clock, I'd start typing up the scenes we talked about, so that would take me until about nine in the evening. So I was, I was getting very, quite little sleep. I'm just keeping going on caffeine, really. Um, and I would deliver the scenes in the morning. I'd put one set of pages through Joe Wezan's door and the other one through Friedkin's door. And uh, one day, Joe came out and said, "You know that problem that we had yesterday, you've really solved it. You've done a brilliant job. I think it's going to be a fantastic film." And as he was saying it, I saw William Friedkin come out of the other door, looking absolute ashen saying i think this is a pilot ship i think we need to go back and start again and i thought i really think i'm going mad now. No, I'm
2: not surprised. Uh,
4: it's so much part of a writer's job as well isn't it Or like, writer's life yeah yeah all these notes. i came
3: home and i had um, i literally without a word of a lie had nightmares about heli- a, a helicopter coming over my house with William Friedkin in the helicopter with a loudhailer hailer, saying, Stephen, we need you to come back to Los Angeles. You haven't finished your work.
2: Oh, That's brilliant. There was, there
3: was, um, also, when I was in the hotel once, late, working late at night, there was a big bang. And I thought, oh, my God, someone's knocked over a huge wardrobe or something in the, in the room above. And I thought, hang on, this is the bungalow part of it. There is no above. So I thought, what the hell's happened? And the tv was on because i always put the tv on for a bit of company and the person on the tv said did you feel that <laughs> and i thought i really am losing my brain
2: <laughs> oh, was,
3: I, the, the newsreaders talking to me and of course it was an earthquake and it was uh, a local earthquake and he felt it just like i felt it and uh, I put, well, again i again i put that in the film of the guardian uh exactly the same thing happens to the character in the guardian <laughs> that earthquake strikes yeah oh, so don't waste anything
4: barton yeah. fink period yeah. Just, uh, enough,
3: only yes only yesterday i said um on twitter i think some or today i think actually someone was talking about cohen brothers film saying how they they thought barton fink was their favorite one and i said i really like it but i find it difficult to watch because it's too much the story of my life <laughs> was yeah. I Guardian, going mad writing a wrestling movie yeah, yeah.
4: having satan marching down the uh Burning corridor to give you notes. <laughs> it really is. It's
0: Absolutely. a writer's film, that isn't it? <laughs> so Stephen, you, you you know you're a few years into your screenwriting career now. You've had a few scripts produced, although mostly you know not not a painless process. I'm just, I'm interested. Did you like any of the films that were made from your scripts? Um, were you happy with them? as a creator
3: um i to be honest i wasn't i i can't say i was happy with the guardian or the kiss um i didn't really know what to make of um gothic um i still don't really <laughs> I, but, I, but i it's so it because it was my first experience of transferring from the page to the screen uh it was a learning curve and it was a massive learning curve to see that the way you see it in your head is not gonna be the way you see it on screen. It is gonna be through the prism of someone else's imagination. And it takes a long time to get your head around that as a writer, really. So so my initial kind of like uh, confusion about watching it was was really based on, on that uh, cognitive dissonance, dissonance, if that's the right phrase, between what I imagined, what kind of film I imagined and, and what kind of film he came up with. When I saw it, I, and, and I really kind of battled with that over the years, um, not really knowing, not, genuinely not knowing what I thought of it. Um, I knew my reasons for creating the underlying material and all the thematic reasons that were into it, but, and, and knowing what he added to it, but not knowing what to make of it. And then recently, within about five years ago, um, <clears throat> a friend of mine called Steve Laws uh, had a screening up in Newcastle. Uh, an audience screening and Q and A, and I went to it. It's the first time I've actually watched it on the big screen for maybe fifteen odd years, and I—it's kind of like a lot of water had gone under the bridge, and I saw it afresh, and I actually enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than I ever done before. And I realised that the madness that he captured, which is like being inside someone's skull in a madhouse kind of thing, was actually was actually completely appropriate for something that was supposed to be a gothic horror and and really that's what it begged to be it didn't it didn't lend itself to being a merchant ivory or even a um uh i don't know a david cronenberg or anything else kind of film he he probably was the only and right person to make it in the end i think
0: yeah, I, I I think it's an extraordinary film. Um, I've, I've seen it a long time ago, um, and I'd love to see it again. Um, I, I didn't I didn't have a chance to rewatch it, but
3: um, I, I'm also, I'm, I, over the years, I've been really reassured and heartened by people like Harlan Ellison, who have written yeah. about how much they 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 really adore it. Oh, I, think, right. I I think to myself, how dare I be? Uncertain about it. When someone like Harold Ellison thinks it's kind of an <laughs> incendiary kind of work of the imagination, you think, "Well, fair enough. Let's just take that on board. You know, and just live with it."
4: <laughs> yeah, his yeah, his quotes all over the Wikipedia page. I noticed today mm. is well, sort of yeah. uh, almost like his is the final word on Gothic. <laughs> it is a it's it's mad as a box of frogs and brilliant. That's basically
3: <laughs> just just <laughs> yeah. the elements well, of it. The image. One, then, one thing yeah. that. Um, <laughs> I should tell you, I don't know if you know, was my, uh, the biggest change from the original script really was that I wanted to start with a dying Mary Shelley telling the story. So she's on her deathbed telling the story. So that wrap, wraps up the whole story as her subjective idea of what happened that night. Uh-huh. That was that was my idea. And he kind of took that away. He didn't want to do that. And, and the idea was you then return to her at the end, the dying Mary Shelley and the creature appears to her. And right. there's a kind of um, there's a kind of a catharsis about she's created this creature and it allows her to go kind of thing. I always like that, really. And I especially would have liked it if Vanessa Redgrave played Natasha's mum. Oh, be yeah, absolutely brilliant. it'd be wonderful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that yeah. drives me mad, but that didn't happen. But I think it's because when Ken made it, it wasn't Mary Shelley's fantasy. It was Ken Russell's fantasy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that
0: was the important thing. No, it's it's many things, but one thing it's not is focused. Um, and it, <laughs> and uh, but but you know you've got it's such a wonderful collision of talent. You've got your scripts. You've got you've got the story of Mary Shelley and what happened at the, at the villa that night. And then you've got it is being viewed through the lens of Ken Russell, and it has a soundtrack by Thomas Dolby. It's just so insane the the collision of elements. Um, I can, all, I can
4: I love... also watch Timothy Spall as Polidari. Oh, yeah. Oh yes, <laughs> he's an he's 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 so good. Well,
3: actually, I remember Tim Tim saying to me when I visited the set once, um, and he was he was actually well into making it, which is which is a bit surprising. When he asked the following question, "I don't really know what kind of film I'm in," he said, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I said it's just a, think of it as a Hammer film," I said. It just happens to be about real people, but it's a Hammer film. And he goes, oh, all right, I get it. So whether that helped or not, I don't know.
4: I've often seen Timothy Spall in quite a few films, and it's like he's in a different film. And I don't mean that against <laughs> Timothy Spall. I just mean, especially when he does a big Hollywood movie and he's turning in a really good performance and everyone else is being hammy around him.
3: Well,
4: <laughs> no, I've seen just, him do he's that in quite Ollie. a few movies. He's
3: a, he's a lovely guy and uh, yeah, was great.
0: <laughs> yeah that's
3: fantastic yeah. Uh, so um,
0: I think everything we've discussed so far has been uh, within horror um, Did uh, and you're obviously known as a horror writer Did you uh, were you pitching other kinds of material and it was just the horror things which kind of got snapped up or were you aiming to, to go for horror uh,
3: good question I mean I'd like to think that I'm, I'm kind of I also operate in the kind of penumbra uh, around horror as well as just horror um you know over the years i have written kind of science fiction or adapted science fiction books or or even into kind of crime and thrillers but they tend not to have happened but nevertheless i did kind of work on them i worked on a adaptation of john wyndham's the chrysalids which i was really pleased with, but with um, a um director called stephen hopkins um Oh yeah. But that that uh, that never happened, sadly. Um and I also wanted to make a film of the glamour. Um, Christopher Priest The Glamour. I was very keen on that, but that never happened. Um, so it's so it's funny. I never wanted to work, um, let's let's think about that. I'm not really interested in kind of social realism or um things outside genre. Um I think when I was writing, let's say in my early twenties, there was a kind of nagging imp on my shoulder that said you know the genre of horror is pretty low end if you're a serious writer do you really want to write this kind of stuff but i realized that's the kind of input of um pretentiousness in a way that thinks that um, you know i might be more <laughs> well regarded if i if i go on a kind of um, uh, literary fix but it but it was it's not me really i didn't find myself drawn to those kind of stories i think you have to it's, it's hard enough finding out what kind of story you want to tell, let alone kind of inflicting on your psyche the kind of stories <laughs> that you think other people want. You know, it, 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 it's just crazy. I mean, that's one thing that, that Nigel Neal actually taught me, little did you know, is that when I saw The Stone Tape, um, uh, I thought, yes, I can write ghost stories. I can write science fiction or like he did. But what you have to do is just do it bloody well and be serious about it and think about it. Make the characters as good as you can get them, make the plots as good as you can get them, but still be in that trench that really excites you, you know? Um, So I I genuinely think that the stone tape was one of those moments, revelatory moments that said, yeah, you can have something that's a ghost story, but intelligent, but well-made, but serious, but with integrity. and genre does, isn't the antithesis of those things.
5: Sorry, can I just to kind of develop that a little bit of point point? Um, in terms of your, you know, own, I suppose, kind of emotional response to horror, you know, with the kind of stone tape, whether or not you feel that, you know, whether you would be you know, the, the career that you've had has meant that you've been in some ways pigeonholed into just being known for horror, whether or not you, you know, kind of how you... I suppose, how you view British horror. Um, we're um, also interviewing um, Gemma Hurley, um, you know, who's obviously part yeah. of the host team. Um, and I know there's been a discussion on Twitter over the last um, couple of days that she's led around um, kind of British horror um, and kind of British horror being devalued. So I'm just wondering what your view are view is on, you know, kind of your role in horror. I
3: think I'd, I'd question a little bit the pigeonhole idea because to me horror is a very very broad church yeah. um, and I'm always wary of people saying that they push at the edges of genre and they kind of want to broaden the envelope and that kind of thing I'm, I'm not really saying that what I'm saying is that um, you know horror can be a really small nudge into a crime story mm. or it can be just a crime story that gives yeah. you a certain feeling or it can be a it can be a socially realistic story that just has a certain aspect that, because it's written by say me or another horror writer, has a different quality to it so um I think the uh, the output of the genre is by the people that create it is quite broad uh I think the problem is that the industry tries to narrow it all the time. It's mm-hmm. like they've got two blocks of wood and they're trying kind to of push you into these shapes that they've already seen and I think anyone with a decent creative bone in their body wants to push against that and say no that's not horror this is horror mm-hmm. and you get terrible things like jump scares that you know yet producers that say we've got to have a jump scare every 10 minutes you know and you think fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and, you know they just don't understand i mean they don't understand that the what you might be up in might be a sense of dread it might be something that is that is more ambiguous in terms of the way that you empathize with a central character that does bad things, although you like them, or they do good things, but they, but but you don't like them. <laughs> so you might be playing with all those nuances within a horror horror genre, um, uh, and yet you kept you keep your cheek keeps getting slapped back into these tropes that they think will help sell it. You know, and the selling and the marketing is what keeps us on this uh, on this really kind of um, maddening uh path, you know towards actually i was going to say towards success it's not even towards success because i think a lot of the time it guides us towards mediocrity and failure that's mm-hmm. the thing um and but you've got to have faith in the terrific people that are around at the moment both in the states and here mostly in the independent sector rather than mainstream studios who are going on their own Path and actually creating kind of worlds that are really different. I'm thinking of Oz Perkins and people like that. Oh, yeah. um, Mike Mike Flanagan, to a certain extent, who mm-hmm. even though he, he's super successful, is still doing his own thing, like he did with Absentia, you know. And then there's Rob Savage, obviously, and um, you know, people, you know, like A Dark Song is another marvelous film that is was mm-hmm. recent one. And um, much as it's difficult to actually, you know, hit your forehead against the the, the, the kind of locked door that is the British film industry. Um, the people that have have the kind of ram's horns to to get through it and get things made are are really brilliant at the moment, and they they keep all of us going. I think really. Mm. Yeah, and,
5: uh, I was just wondering as well about the kind of your perception of um, sort of the openness of um, you know kind of uh, the powers that be in the film industry. Um, uh, you know, in, in the UK versus in the US, uh, and how open they are to you know, kind of horror text in particular. Whether you uh, again just kind of thinking about you know, some of the discussions on Twitter that you know, it's the, the, the British kind of um establishment seem to be less kind of open to horror, um, or view it as less you know, kind of prestigious. Or I think whatever. there's a difference
3: between people that want to direct and produce horror, um. Who are usually fans you know people mm. like me basically and you um but i think there's a conservatism about people that want to fund it and sell it and market it yeah um and they just look at the figures and they look at the figures and say you know what the trouble is that people in this country in the uk they'd rather go and see a film with american characters than they would with british characters so why would we put money into a british set movie when mm. we can actually you know, so you get that, you get that kind of problematic kind of reality check, really. But I mean, the good thing is you don't break out of that until you break those rules. I think, and and we've got to keep breaking the rules. I mean, horror is about doing what's not allowed. You know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, Ramsey Ramsey Campbell said, you know, and I was use it in relation to Ghostwatch really. Horror, the business of horror is to go too far you know
2: mm-hmm. so
3: it should always be disobedient i should always not take no for an answer you know
2: yeah
4: uh yeah i i know ramsey campbell i'm just adapting one of his uh the hungry moon uh, oh, for it, yeah. audio but uh but i was just thinking about um i was just thinking about uh you've you've done a lot on tv in this genre and that in my experience seems even more unusual because you come up with a horror idea and agents will say can you call it suspense can you make sure <laughs> you don't can you make sure you uh you know they won't buy horror however they don't do tv on horror and we've talked on this podcast about how difficult it is to have
3: supernatural they say can we call it paranormal yeah <laughs> call it paranormal they say oh can we just call it thriller yeah <laughs> I mean,
4: yeah i absolutely loved your midwinter of the spirit oh um, thank
3: you very much that, Yeah, was that was, just. i mean that had the benefit of having a book out there that was successful. So it was an easier sell. But I tell you what happened on on that particular occasion was um, uh, it just landed on the right desk at the right time. And that's all it was. And half of these things happening is about being at the right place at the right time. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, And uh, ITV Studios, um, Phil Collinson, you know, of uh, Doctor Who fame was the producer. And they, you know, I got interviewed many other people got interviewed to do it phil blessing was big fan of afterlife and so most of my answers how would you do this how would you do the supernatural life i just said well i'd do it like i did in afterlife so that was my that was (laughs) the extent of my job interview really but anyway i got i got the gig and and they commissioned the script and and it it was one of those things where it landed on the desk of the the head of drama when they were thinking oh I, i wonder if we should do a supernatural series and it was as simple as that they 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 wanted it at that time and you know nine times out of 10 19 times out of 20 <laughs> the timing's wrong you know um but we were just lucky in that case
4: yeah i mean the um i mean yeah you, you've i mean you've been lucky slash really talented to plow your furrow in tv film and fiction um i mean i guess the big one is is ghost watch um which obviously Stella, Stella is our ghostwatch expert. <laughs> um, so, uh, do you ever get?
3: Okay, so get tired of
4: talking about ghostwatch?
3: Yeah. Stella goes <laughs> ask me or something that, on. that hasn't been asked before. I dare you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, well, I've,
6: got, I've got a long list. <laughs> if anyone
3: can do it. Stella
0: can do it.
6: Well, well, first of all, thank you for scaring eleven-year-old me to death.
2: No. So
6: that was good. Um, and, you know, it's not done me any harm. I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> I can sleep well without Valium. It's all good. Um, so I wanted to know, we all know the reaction to Ghostwatch, the backlash and the tabloid newspapers and all the complaints. And in part, that sort of helped to cement it as as the legend that it is. But what was your, or how did you anticipate the reaction to be? What was your intended reaction to to ghost watch
3: um i'll try and i'll try and be absolutely honest about this but last time i was absolutely honest about it the producer laughed in my face and said that's not true at all um, and that was <laughs> the, that was at the 25th anniversary we did at the bfi where i was asked that question and uh, and i said what i'll say to you now which was uh i always thought that I was writing it for someone like me watching the stone tape, okay? Yeah. <laughs> just to refer back to what we've been talking about. So someone like me, you know, 15 or 17, tuning in to see the stone tape and just being mesmerized and talking about it the next day. I mean, we lived on that when we were in school. Going on Monday morning, we couldn't wait to talk about that great thing we'd seen that weekend. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about TV. that that what we now call kind of water cooler moment or whatever. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a ghost story with that water cooler moment that everyone is talking about the next day? So that's part of my kind of motivation, and lots of other kind of motivations about why to do it in that way. Um, but um, yeah, so what I thought would happen is someone like me would tune into it, watch it, and maximum ten minutes into it, you'd realise, oh yeah, I get it. This is a fake thing. <laughs> and then you'd realize this is a drama, but okay, that's a good gag. We'll go with it and see what happens. And that's what I thought. 10-15 minutes in, you might buy it 10-15 minutes, and then you think, Oh, I've got it. Okay, so this is a drama, especially as it's signals screen one, you know. Yeah. But nevertheless, we would do it as if it isn't. That's the whole game we were playing. But people wouldn't really buy it all the way through. And in fact, the producer, <clears throat> when we had many talks, she said kind of like 10 minutes from the end of the running time she said I think by now everyone will get it so can we please just be really over the top at the end because <laughs> I don't want anyone thinking it was real at the end so we would had all the exploding lights yeah. and talking to the camera and all, all that craziness in the studio really and and a kind of strange climb jump which doesn't work in in the time scale of the thing anyway um and she kind of wanted that because she thought we'd have earned it by then we hadn't been we in trouble, but we, and as it turned out, we were in trouble. So, um, but yeah, I mean, when I told that story on the stage of the BFI, she just looked at me and laughed and said, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> I think we all sat around wanting it to be the next war of the world and expecting people would be running down the street, waving their arms kind of thing. <laughs> she didn't actually say those words, but um, I don't. I don't remember us thinking about the reaction in terms of an audience. When you're working in a piece of horror, I think you're thinking about, is this gonna get under someone's skin? Are they gonna mm-hmm. get this moment? You're thinking about, you're kind of tuning the engine. You're, you're kind mm. of giving it its MOT all the time. You're not really thinking about what's gonna happen when it's gonna be running on the motorway. Mm.
2: That's
3: a weird kind of analogy that got away from me there. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's really what I anticipated. And maybe there was a kind of double speak going on in my mind, which was I'm going to say this to myself because I don't want to contemplate that people will be genuinely terrified. Mm-hmm. So I have a kind of, I have a kind of, I'm preparing myself with a screen memory so that I don't have to <laughs> contemplate people who get really upset by it. <laughs> but I didn't think so because I'm working in genre. It's not a question of people getting upset by what you do because the people that like the genre won't get upset by it it's the pleasurable Mm. terror and all the rest of it but of course what's what doesn't work with tv is a whole pile of people are going to watch it that aren't horror fans aren't ghost story fans aren't and in this case aren't really clicking to what you're up to so it became a much more complex kind of venn diagram or formula (laughs) than i could possibly have unraveled really i mean you know i've done a lot of Thinking over the over the years trying to unravel it but i don't think i could have anticipated it any better than we did really
4: mm. yeah you had, you had people phoning <laughs> in saying you're messing with forces you don't
3: understand and yeah maybe we were maybe we, maybe we were did you see you didn't see the last leg on friday did you they did i saw it we were just talking yeah.
6: about it before and i watched that show every bloody week and then last week i didn't so i was like no no i'm gonna i'm gonna watch a film i'm gonna watch something they did
3: it they did the whole ending which was very clever and uh, quite yeah. strangely touching really yeah i'm gonna
2: like,
6: uh, watch it we'll again go as soon as we've done, i'm gonna yeah. w- i'm gonna find it and watch it but i can't believe the one week i didn't see it in years <laughs> No,
5: Stephen right. can, can I ask a linked question um sure. so since since you know kind of ghost watch um what kind of other you know film or television programs or filmmakers who um have made stuff and kind of reference ghost watch um or credited ghost watch as being kind of influential um have you found most gratifying <laughs> um,
3: well I was very gratified by inside number
2: nine
3: yeah um, <laughs> I uh I worked with Reese Shearsmith on a on a play, a fundraising play we did for the Bush, which was based on a story of mine called The Chapel of Unrest. Oh, great. And um, I was I the reason I did it was that they thought they could get Jim Broadbent to play one of the parts. And I thought, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm in, I'll do that. Thank you very much. So I was on my way up in the train to rehearsals. I mean, it was a it was a it was a um, play reading, you know, they were holding the script, it was just a one-day event. <clears throat> And the producer or the, the um, head of the studio rang to say, um, oh, we've cast the other part and it's Reese Shearsmith. And I was like, oh my God, that's even more fantastic because I'm such a fan of of those guys. And you know, it was such a lovely moment because no sooner could I say, I couldn't even get my words out how much I, I really loved his, uh, his you know, uh, League of Gentlemen and all the characters and whatnot. And he was telling me how much he loved Ghostwatch. Uh, so we kind of, we got friendly over that and we've met since and that kind of thing. And when I heard they were going to do a live Halloween thing, I thought, oh, here we go. And I, <laughs> I dropped, sent him a text and I said, could you please just squeeze in a little reference to Ghostwatch because that would be ever so nice. And he said, I think you'll be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all he said, really. which is really nice. Yeah.
4: I mean, they they kind of, I thought it was fantastic, but they had what you was saying you envisaged for Ghost Watch, which is we all I think everyone I don't think there were anybody in the country who thought it was real.
2: Yeah. There was well, a bit I did
4: watch it. I did watch it with my wife and yeah. told her it was live and she did she did think, oh it's what's gone wrong, what's going on? And she started fiddling with the so she thought it was real to start with, that the transmission had gone off and things. Um very
3: clever. I mean they crammed it almost half an hour as well. Half is, an hour yeah. Is,
4: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they, they sort of put Twitter in there, so if you're online, looking at it,
2: <laughs> Mark Gattis it's, was it's,
4: tweeting, Mark Gattis was tweeting, yeah, what's going yeah. on? And <laughs> Kirstie, course, and so, um, so that was happening live.
3: Kirsty, more recently, the um, host, of course, has been really gratifying because uh, Rob and Jed and, and the people involved um, have been saying how much it was influenced by Ghostwatch. And, uh, you know, that, that, yeah. that's been lovely. I mean thirty years you know twenty nine years later,
4: yeah. yeah, we're interviewing Gemma right after yeah. you, and she um yeah she's uh she she said she's a big fan um she's like, oh my god <laughs> yeah
3: the the funny thing was Jed did an interview with me, I don't know if you know this, and um we were talking much like we are we are doing, and he said oh we're gonna we're gonna make a film that's kind of got a ghost watch premise or I'd really like to do something like that and uh, no, uh, no, he didn't tell me about it. Sorry, I misremembered I mis- that. What he said to me was, um, how would you do it if you were doing it now? And I said, well, I wouldn't do it now. I think, <laughs> I think the whole point is I did it then.
2: Yeah. And
3: to be honest, the person that does something now will be hopefully something I wouldn't think of. And I kind of look forward to that. It'll be someone else and it'll be it'll be great. So anyway, he he went away thinking, right, I'm gonna do that. Um and of course they and of course they did. And I completely forgotten I'd made that remark until the film came out and he sent me a link and I watched it and I thought it was great. And then he said, You know you you kind of virtually told me to do it, don't you? <laughs> so that was that's really gratifying.
4: Yeah, and that that was, I take it that was just that was before COVID came along. You had that yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just what a year they've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome That's, in, in the top of everything else,
7: but yeah.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so no. we're here to talk about your book, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> if you like, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what's the uh, what's the your, your a lot of your books seem to, and with Gothic as well, you seem to base them or they seem to include people who are real, sort of within yeah, in, within it's a strange thing universe,
3: that, isn't it? And I was I was kind of analyze it really and I think um I think they're kind of surrogate writers so they're kind of surrogates of me in a way really indeed because I think I've taken to the kind of fiction that um uh you know I first of all I wrote the novella about Peter Cushing called Whitstable and I I thought that would be a one-off and then and then I thought I had a kind of story idea about Alfred Hitchcock as a child and and then the more I thought about that and wanted to expand it, it felt just of the same kind of ilk as Whitstable, you know, um, about people that are basically immersed in the business of scaring people or the kind of genre that I love and that kind of thing. And then, and then I kind of thought, hang on, I, I, you know, I was doing that way back with Mary Shelley and Gothic. You know, what what goes into the creation of, what what is the psyche that invents the things that that we value in the genre, you know, what, uh, and it, and I guess by then I was starting to realize this is my way of examining why I do things, why I value horror and and, and the subtext of them the all really is why the hell do we do this? Is it something that's, um, uh, you know, um, immersed in the core of us that we that we have to kind of get off our chest? Is it, is it just our way of dealing with reality and, and what goes into creating the people that have to have this outlet, really? So, you know, obviously, I don't want to really go into detail as a kind of thesis because I was wanted to examine it in dramatic form, really, in storytelling form. Uh, and so I did, you know, I did the th- the the three in the Dark Masters trilogy were Peter Cushing, the actor; Alfred Hitchcock, the director, and the third one was Dennis Wheatley, the horror writer. So I was examining, examining, you know, why why horror, why the supernatural, why does the, the genre interest? us all, you know, and what are what are the powers in it? What are there because because so many people that don't like horror think it's a debased and rather immoral practice. Yeah. And I've always felt it really isn't. It really isn't. It's about the light and it's about life, you know, after life wasn't about death. It was about life. You know, it was kind of there in the title. And it's about <laughs> positive values and it's about people questioning their values. Um, I always think, in a way that's much more fundamental than things that are non-genre storytelling. So this in, this new book, in a way, is an extension with my using kind of historical figures to kind of examine my own kind of love affair with the genre. And it's, um, <clears throat> it's called Under a Raven's Wing. And it takes place in Paris in the 1870s. And it's about a young Sherlock Holmes, before he meets Dr. Watson, so it's kind of B.W. in a way, before Watson. <laughs> uh, and he goes kind of on vacation to Paris, and he becomes involved in a strange case where he, he realizes he has these deductive powers, and he's taken under the wing of a detective called Dupin, who, of course, is the famous detective created by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so I manufactured the situation where Edgar Allan Poe's you know, first invented detective in fiction. Uh, Auguste Dupin is is a double act with the young Sherlock Holmes, who in these stories is a kind of Watson figure to the great genius deductive power that is Dupin. That's and, fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I wrote a, an initial story for a collection. Um, an anthology that a friend of mine, Charles like a, a Canadian um, editor, was writing, and he wanted to show a film story. So I wrote the first one, and then I kind of like this um, duo of detectives, and I liked the whole setting of 1870s Paris, and it had a kind of grotesque, kind of Edgar Allan Poe feel to it. That's very, very um, tales of mystery and imagination, and you know, a bit more outré than a Doyle story but a lot of Doyle into it as well and I ended up over the years writing seven stories and became much more immersed in who these characters were as a kind of character arc and a narrative so in the end even though it's seven separate stories it kind of goes together almost like a novel I think by the time (laughs) we reach the end and it's the story of the story of the two of them to the point when Holmes goes back to England um Uh, and uh
4: yeah, I was going to say. So, so it sounds it sounds it sounds brilliant, but it sounds quite meta as well because Dupin is obviously, obviously seen as the person that made Sherlock Holmes and every other detective.
3: Yeah. Afterwards,
4: yeah. so it's kind of you're you're having that the fictional characters. It's, Dupin uh, is making I, Sherlock. I, Holmes I think I can
3: say it's nothing if not meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my the, the, the whole re- raison d'être really is this idea that you know you always read that even Doyle said that Sherlock Holmes was, you know, owed a debt to Edward Poe's Detective DuPont, you know, we're all treading in his footsteps, all living in his shadow. He said virtually that, you know, and I thought, well, no one's, to my knowledge, and someone will probably point this out, but nobody, to my knowledge, has done that in fictional form. Yeah, no, it's, characters, it's, it's, it's you know? It took a lot of con- contriving to actually get it, you know, to get it to, to kind of work, but, I mean, I've got all sorts of historical characters in the stories, like I've got the um, uh, Um, uh, Dr. Professor Charcot and the hysterics in in Salpetriere Hospital. I've got uh, Jules Verne um, and his stories about, you know, visits to the moon. I've got, you know, an old man who has a perverse interest in visiting the uh, Paris morgue. (laughs) You know, the true story behind what eventually becomes the Phantom of the Opera. So there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of meaty stories there. I hope. I hope people will really enjoy it. Uh, but it like sounds... you say, it, it does fit. It does fit into that format that I've done with the Dark Masters trilogy and and in fact with Gothic as well. Um, just yeah. in terms of um, just just investigating in story form my my love of it really and why it, why all those things appeal to me.
4: Yeah, you you'll, you'll know your Holmes a lot better than me. But um, doesn't Holmes talk about Dupin in the Scarlet Letter?
0: Uh, you mean a
3: study in Scarlet, St- Sorry,
4: Study, study, in Scarlet. <laughs>
3: yeah, see, I think he calls him a, a pretty inferior fellow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
4: but is it is it right that he he talks about him as though he's a real person, not as though he's a fictional character? No, So
3: no, I think he, I, I, I think Watson says some sometimes when he meets, Watson says when he meets Holmes that he knew of Dupin in the in the story, but he had no idea such people existed in real life.
4: Oh, I see. Uh... I thought maybe I thought maybe Doyle had Doyle had gone kind of uh, <laughs>
3: Early
0: Meta. Early meta or had, had
4: said, Yeah, just imagine he was setting it up for them to meet. <laughs> In a future story. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's almost as good as the Margaret Rutherford Miss Marple film where they say, Where do you get all this brilliant deductive skill, Miss Marple? And she goes, Oh, I just read those wonderful novels of Agatha Christie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry and I interrupted you.
4: No, no, no. It was uh, <laughs> I was uh no I just uh it's uh it definitely sounds like an amazing book. Um oh, def- should,
3: right, should, like, so, like uh, I said, right on my alley. I should, I should effectively plug it properly and say that it's, it's coming out from PS Publishing. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, it should be coming out pretty soon.
0: Great. Yeah. Well we'll
3: put, we'll put a link.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure to do that. And um, I, I I, love your short stories, uh, Stephen. Oh, I, I read Dark Corners, um, which I still have my copy of. I, I, I was very grateful that I've still got it because I've moved house a couple of times since I bought it. And I, I went online last night and discovered that it's out of print and really rather expensive.
3: I thought you were going to say that you threw it out and it followed you. <laughs> 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 well, that's, well, it was a bit creepy, spooky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But so no that's it, not a bad idea. Book that follows some
0: AI.
6: Yeah, Write that down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've crossed over from um from, you know, from talking about film to talking about TV to to uh, <coughs> literature. And yeah, I'm aware you've also written for audio, um Steve, and um, I, I loved the series a few years ago that Baffle Gab Productions made called Hammer Chillers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um which um I don't think that they've made a second series, have they? Uh, um, I wish they would. It's. Uh, I recommend that hugely. Um, so it sounds like uh, you have always kept your um, fingers, for want of a, a better word, in all, all the different streams uh, of production. It, was that deliberate or is it just a case of, you know, being a pragmatic writer, you have to...
3: Um, I, th- I think it's partly pragmatism, really, because um, when you work on screenplays it's a long-term commitment it goes on for years and years and years and just to keep yourself sane really it's quite nice to do these other things that are short sharp bursts in between um and and i discovered uh, short stories really I, I i never really knew there was a market for short stories until about i think about 2005 something like that and i realized when i went to a horror conference that there are a whole pile of magazines that actually um and anthologies out there in the small press, and I thought, oh, I'll um, I'll start to get into this, but you know, just uh, purely enjoyment, and it is, it's is still purely enjoyment, um, and um, it's a it's a way also of getting, like I don't literally take scripts that have been rejected and turn them into stories just to get them out there. I hardly, I can't remember any time when I did that, but but it's a way of actually seeing something writing something I mean sometimes a short story will only take you a few days and then you send it off and six months time it's in a book it's actually out there for someone to read and so much time and effort is wasted in the film industry and tv of things that you put a lot of your soul into and hard work and they never ever get seen or read by anyone maybe three people at the most sometimes and you put months if not years of work into it so it's, it's a quick fix in a way and and also I just like I've always loved short stories. I mean, I grew up with the pan books, uh, of, of, uh, books of horror stories and that kind of thing, um, and I've always loved that. I've always loved uh, Poe, as you could tell. And um, so, the, the discipline of a shorter form is is really interesting. And and often you can, you can if you've got a short, sharp, sharp shock of a story, for instance, or not even a shock, but just a an idea that's suited to a short story it's not something that will translate into something that you could sell to TV. You know, how many kind of half hours or 10 minute slots are out there? Not, not many. I mean, I know people are doing things direct for YouTube now and that kind of thing, making short films, but um, you know, the, the great, the great um, uh, onus now is to come up with things that are long running series, you know, six parts, eight parts, five seasons you know this is what people want uh and um so so it satisfies a different different part of you know i just like stories of all shapes and forms and if an idea comes and it's in that form then you know if i've got the skill to pull it off then then i will i mean a lot of the time I in any of these mediums i come up with an idea and i think you know what i can't write that I haven't got the skill to pull it off or I don't know how to do it. And, you know, a lot of things uh, I'll abandon or I'll kind of just not do quite early on. You know, writers very uh, seldom talk about that aspect, which is working on an idea that just doesn't come to anything. I mean, I'm not talking about doesn't come to anything because you've given it to people, they can't sell it, but just it doesn't work on its own terms. Mm. Um, But you, you know, but you never know, you can come back to it. You know, I've come back to ideas that... malformed or half formed years later and, I, and then I think you know what I can I can, I can do it I did, a, I did a, an idea for a script like 20 years ago when I read a little cutting that said that Thomas, Thomas Edison in the early 1920s was working on a machine to contact the dead and this was a report in Scientific American where he said with the rise in spiritualism he wanted to create a phonograph that could talk to the dead and i i said this away i got all these biographies of edison and he might have been taking the piss for i know but anyway <laughs> eventually i eventually i thought you know what all this idea of researching edison is driving me around the bend so i, I just thought one day i'm not going to research him at all i'm just going to write the bloody story so i did write this i did write a script called the listeners which was about edison inventing a machine for talking to the dead. um but that mm. took like 20 years to just have the gumption to get on with it, you know, and that, that to me, that happens quite a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not sequentially, though, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple well, ideas. I like, to, I like to
3: kind of, I mean, I think most writers are like this. You know, we call it kind of spinning plates i don't know if any of you remember the old sunday night of the london palladium where yeah, right. where someone used to come on and spin plates at the end of poles and then rush from one to the other and keep, keep them spinning and then some would come crashing to the ground and that's what it feels like being a professional writer a lot of the time some of them crash to the ground and you fling other ones up and keep them spinning you know wow um
0: Perfect. yeah Something that we've talked about on this podcast before, and I'd love to get your take on this, Stephen, is the fact that TV has changed so much um, in recent years and decades, particularly with regard to horror. I mean, I, I remember I saw a screening of Ghost Watch in Manchester and you were present uh, 15 years ago. Oh, wow. And afterwards <laughs> you did a QA. and a And one of the questions was... Um, you know horror films do well. what why can't why why don't we get more of this stuff on TV? And your answer then was because when people are with horror films, you know that people have paid money to see that specific film, whereas you've got to be more careful about offending the TV audience because, as you said earlier, you know that they're, they're not necessarily there just for that genre or whatever. Whereas now we've got a situation where Stella here is Hello. able to. Is able to educate us on on the um, the marketing situation in America, which allows kind of whole kind of network channels to be based around horror content like uh, AMC and and FX, and that uh, you, you know that situation hasn't quite been replicated over here. But you do get there's been a real proliferation of horror content on TV in in recent years, and I just wondered if. Does it seem different from your point of view?
3: Wow, yeah, it's completely different. I mean, just that that remark seems so out of date now, doesn't it, with all the Mm streamers? I was referring, obviously, in my defense to Channel 4, BBC (laughs) 1 and 2 on Mm. ITV, and not much else, really. Um, I I was aware of, at that time, of HBO, probably. Um, You know, uh, HBO was seen as... As kind of breaking down the boundaries of things like swearing and sex and all the rest of it, but that was pretty much all that was around, I think, when I was making that kind of remark. Or maybe I was only thinking of the opportunities in the UK. That's my defence anyway. But now I think, I think those outlets are still have those biases. I think mm. you'd be, I think you'd be hard to make explicit horror on, say, Channel Four or even or ITV, um, mm. but it, explicit horror what do i mean by that I'm, i mean i mean gore you yeah. know gore and upsetting things and you know you don't have to you watch you ever watch goggle box do you ever watch the crowd on goggle box when they watch something scary a scary movie they go absolutely
2: nuts
3: they climb up the walls <laughs> and that kind of thing and that's probably the british mainstream tv audience you know as opposed to you know hardcore horror fans and that kind of thing really but there are many more there are many more outlets now. I mean, I have to say that even though there are 450 streamers that you can go to, I don't feel that my life is made any easier whatsoever <laughs> 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 in terms of where I can go, or, or my or my producers, my my uh, putative producers could could go because it's like a it's like a kind of logjam, really. It's it's everyone is trying to go to Netflix, so everyone's trying to go yeah. there. So. You're reliant on those gatekeepers and those um, producers to get you through. I mean, with with few exceptions, I don't think writers have conversations with um, drama controllers. You know, so so it's people ushering you to the right place with really, and developing mm-hmm. things with with the individual producers and production companies that that are well placed to have those conversations and and get it through. Um, I mean, I had a conversation with producer a couple of months ago and to my astonishment given that he was a British producer he said oh I'd really like to do something like American Horror Story and I thought really have you seen that (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to kind of do something that was that brash crazy and brazen but I don't think I do not think that you could go to like BBC One or ITV with that kind of
2: uh,
6: (laughs) <laughs> I'd love to see it though. I'd love to see uh, I'd, I'd the Daily Mirror of the I'd day. I really <laughs>
3: could, but it would be so many battles to have. Even if the producer, you know, was on your side and you came up with it and you loved it, just I think they would be so scared of satisfying the mainstream audience, yeah. and and that is what they're obsessed by, really. And even though even though people are watching things online, um, the terrestrials are still obsessed by overnight figures. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a great kind of sea change probably coming or trickling in a way as these things become apparent, um, yeah. very, very slowly. In the case of the BBC, as a uh, uh, as it changes, um, but I mean, we've we've had a, it, I mean, since I made that that in retrospect rather rather um, limited remark, I think. I'm that, sorry,
0: Stephen. I feel like I've given you a complex.
3: No, <laughs> no it's no. I just think it. it well, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about the future. I think I probably was talking accurately about. There's no reason why I wouldn't be honest about what I felt at the time. Um, but it's proven that that it's quite a shallow indication of the future because um, streaming has just opened up so many different things. I mean, a, a good case in point, I think, was uh, a really good show on the BBC called Ripper Street. Um, uh, finished, got canned, I think. Then it went to Netflix got another series I think was far better on Netflix than it ever was at the BBC it became the series that it deserved to be I thought in the end it was really fantastic uh, and that to me was an example of how the streamers can be creatively freeing um, yeah I was I was thinking that
4: with midwinter of the spirit because that only got one season didn't it yeah
3: yeah
4: and I felt I felt I was very hungry for more of that
3: uh, um, that's very I thought
4: it was um I'd, I'd like, it was, I'd like to, it was genuinely genuinely scary in a you know in
3: a yeah. I was yeah, surprised. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the director, Richard Clark, was fantastic. I mean, I didn't dream that he would really push it as far as he did in terms <clears> of atmosphere. <throat> he did a brilliant job. And you know, um Anna Maxwell Martin was so grounded in that part. She was absolutely <clears> brilliant. <throat> uh, I would have happily done more, so would you know uh uh, Phil, the, the producer, would have wanted to do more. Unfortunately, it was uh, it was it was the bad luck we were up against uh, Dr. Foster, and everyone was watching yeah. Dr. Foster. You know, and
4: oh really?
3: The funny thing was, it went out early October, when in fact it would be more suited to November or getting on for December. But yeah. ITV were actually very keen on it, um, so they brought it forward in the schedules. But it, you know, Sobs Law it clashed with Dr. Foster, and that was the big hit at the time. <laughs> you know, and we so. We were just done with the figures.
4: Yeah, it's so, it's so annoying. The thing is, I was watching both because <laughs> I
3: was
4: watching them both. On. No
3: done, no. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't watching.
4: It. I don't know when I last watched something on transmission. Yeah. Um. No, I just it's all remember.
3: changing, isn't it? It's all changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, yeah. and also,
3: what you know, another thing from my point of view is the. Um, it's, it's probably sounds irrelevant, but. The duration of a piece of drama, you know, be it half an hour, be it 40 minutes, be it fifty minutes, be it an hour and a quarter, or three episodes, six episodes, ten episodes, it seems like all better off now, which is very refreshing. You don't have to keep to the mm. hour episodes that always used to be the thing for, for BBC. You know, always had to be a certain number of minutes and that kind of thing. I mean, it, it still is, in a way, for ITV, but... Um, but the streamers are much more malleable in terms of mm. the form that, that drama takes, you know.
4: Even in terms of episode length, which is yeah. which is freaking some viewers out. Yeah, like there's an episode they're used to 45 minutes, and then they'll get one episode and it's been 20 minutes, mm-hmm. so and yeah. it's like yeah. well, we don't like. Well, it. And, <laughs> the, and, the, and the, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the okay. idea the idea yeah. is it's it's like when you re- basically you're reading a book, and one of the chapters is short because that's that's what that chapter demands yeah, yeah. kind of thing yeah.
6: well there's lots um, of the writers you know writers and directors that are working with netflix stuff they're saying that we want the the story to dictate mm. how long an episode is not because there's no schedule anymore and then when certain shows do do it on netflix so the last one that i noticed that had its episode length all over the place was black summer the first episode is an hour and a half and there's one in the minute, middle that was 20 minutes and the finale is like 12 minutes and I thought, well, this is great, because you can just bash through it in, in a day. And I really enjoyed it. But I saw lots of people complaining on it, going, well, why was the episode so short? I feel like I've been shortchanged. And that was really odd.
3: I think something should always have a, a structure. That's yeah. Satisfying. It sounds like, like that, some of that, It was that, like that.
6: And wasn't. everyone went, eh? I mean, I remember, again,
3: Ripper Street. I remember the very last episode, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. I think that was, I think that was an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. And it really deserved it because it yeah. got into the essence of the main character so brilliantly. Uh, I really thought it was magnificent um, ending to the series, and it really, it really held for that hour and twenty minutes, hour hour and a half. And um, uh, I think, I think you know, you can earn that, and I think you can also earn a long first episode. But yeah, um, yeah, you can earn anything. <laughs> but, but but when it feels like there's been some. Panic and <laughs> filling in or something. It probably does like anything else. It just, you know, it, it depends whether it feels like it. The, the decisions got integrity, just like any other part of that. Mm. Mm. <laughs>
2: what have you?
4: What have you got coming up beside the uh, beside the novel? Have you got? Have you got um, TV coming up?
3: Um, to be honest, last year everything has gone on ice. To be honest, last year I had a um, had a feature film that was. Uh, with a director that was very keen on it in January and it was it just got completely uh, like I say on ice or the picture that brings to mind is that at the end of The Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo becomes that bronze figure you know (laughs) 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 you have to wait wait a whole year for the next episode that's what it feels a bit like and i I'm gearing up on a television series that's going to be supernatural that I'm hoping to really get my teeth into writing the first episode. I've got a couple of I don't know if you know a novelist called Tim Levin who wrote The Silence. Oh yeah, The, oh,
4: the yes. Aliens. The uh, Aliens And yeah. he wrote the
0: introduction to your Dark Corners. He uh, did. Apology.
3: And, uh, yeah, that seems like a long time ago. because i, I kind <laughs> of know known that well then and and uh, I know him really well now. He's one of my best mates and we've written a We've written a TV pilot and a film, so those are both in development. Um, yeah, quite a, quite a few irons in the fire, gearing up, but nothing screen wise is going to happen immediately. Just have to keep uh, yeah. keep spinning, keep spinning the plate.
4: Yeah, uh, Tim Levin's amazing. He's uh he's a uh, well, Dirt Mags is a friend of the podcast, and his uh, I don't know if you heard his take on eight, Tim's alien. Alien novels.
3: Yeah. I know they work together,
4: yeah. Oh, they're pretty amazing.
3: <laughs> I'm trying to remember the name of
0: Tim's alien novel, but, but there's so many things called Alien Something. Out the, um, out, was out it, it Out of the Shadows? Yes. Or was that oh, yeah, yeah, that's right.
4: Yeah. That was his, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Uh, Stephen, we've we've kind of done a whistle-stop tour of your wonderful, uh, amazing achievements in, in the horror genre. I wondered... Now
3: we've reached the end of the line. Well, um, before we, we
0: we enter into the station, I was just wondering if you have a favourite uh, um, or, or something that gives you oh. particular pride that you've um, created over the years.
3: Um. Oh God, it's a bit like which which child the, you know, <laughs>
2: um,
3: <laughs> Sophie's choice. Um, <laughs> um. You know, it's really difficult at the moment because I'm on a on a kick with um, with Andorra Raven's wing. And I'm really partial to historical settings and horror and that kind of thing. And it, it, especially I think at the moment where I'm feeling like I want to escape from real life even more so than usual. And, you know, going back to something like 1875 uh, and dealing with people in top hats and that kind of thing (laughs) is really appealing. And and also I, I really enjoy it, but it's not, you know, I never think it's pure escapism because I like to think there's something more going on than the surface always but um but I kind of yeah I'm on a bit of a kick of historical horror at the moment, so maybe I think I'm going to start thinking about another novel that's in a historical setting but related to uh, related to horror i think uh, but what I was going to say is that, that the thing I think is that I'm most kind of proud of is is the next thing in a funny kind of way. You still was be anticipating that the next thing is a big kick, not the last thing. Um, and uh you know in in some ways all the you know over the years it's it's really humbling to have so much attention on Ghostwatch. But you know, 30 years ago it would be nice to just just pull off something else that's not not pull off in the way that it's a gag or anything, but just mm. come up with something that you know, like it's a sin was on the other yeah. the other week, fantastic yeah. TV show, and and uh, you know I particularly absolutely loved it, not in my genre at all, <laughs> to add, but just fantastic TV, brilliantly written, And Yeah,
4: that is well, that's, that's why it was because it was we started chatting on Twitter, didn't we? Because um, because Russell Russell mentioned I was at the Writers Guild thing, and Russell at the end mentioned mentioned yeah. we can bring down the government. With a psychic, psychic thing like Steve, and he said like Stephen Volk's, like Stephen <laughs> Volk's Ghost Watch. Yeah, that was, he, he obviously that'll work. Yeah, <laughs> but he obviously he's he's a sort of genre head as well, isn't well, he? I
3: remember being up in Manchester working with Phil on on the script of um, Midwinter with the Spirit, and we were he had a call he had a call from Russell on the phone as we went <clears> to the lift, and he says. Uh, Oh, Russell says, says hi. He said to, to tell you that he watches watch every Halloween. <laughs> he just said yeah. it off the cuff, and I thought, wow, that is great. <laughs> yeah. and,
4: and obviously, he, he, um, I saw you were chatting as well. Um, it just goes to show that everyone is watching Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, just I saw you chatting with him on Twitter, and, and he said, of course, Afterlife, and that's obviously because his buddy, um, Leslie yeah. Sharp, yeah, you know, is yeah. is so amazing in Afterlife, um, and he's yeah. he's worked with her, Bob and Rose, and then Doctor yeah. Who, and um, and obviously isn't that amazing coming. Christopher Eccleston, Second Coming, yeah, But she kills God. Spoilers. <laughs> but,
0: uh... I've been looking forward to watching that for seventeen years, Ian. <laughs> have you not watched? I should it have yet? done it, shouldn't
2: I?
4: <laughs> well, it doesn't really give that much away. <laughs> <laughs> you still have to watch, watch out,
3: it. Watch out for the spaghetti scene.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Really nice.
3: It's actually very important to spaghetti thing
0: Wow, okay. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to remember.
4: We, uh, yeah. we've come to an end of our allotted time. We could uh, we could nice keep to talk talking and talking. But yeah, yeah
0: we, we could go a on a brother, on for sure. It. It's been <laughs> yeah. fantastic, Stephen. Um it's you... been
3: good fun. Thank you, <laughs>
2: Stephen.
0: Thank you for your time and thank you for everything you've done for the the genre of horror especially oh, in this country very nice.
3: that's very nice well
0: there's there's been times in, in during your the period of time when you were around professionally when it was only you and, and a few other people who seem to be keeping things chugging along so thank you very much
3: for doing that oh that's that's brilliant that's lovely to hear i really appreciate you saying that it's very nice
0: So listeners, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Volk. We're really honoured to have his company for for an hour or so. And um, he was so generous with his time. And that was fantastic. Now then, Howard, it is time for The Bag of Death.
1: It's that time again. And
0: here it is. I have it right here. Who knows what we may draw from it. It does contain, of course, as we've explained on previous episodes, pretty much every English language horror film that both you and I have seen. and and we're going we don't but we may not have seen them very recently but we'll see what happens what i'm going to draw out so i've got something here let me open this piece of oh oh it's a film that we have discussed once before on the show in fact but i think it could do with a little more detail maybe it is frankenstein and the monster from hell
1: ah yes we have yes so, it. it's, yeah. so um, that's
0: from 1973, it's the final, well actually I think it was released in 74, it's the final Hammer Frankenstein film, the final appearance of Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, as he is in the Hammer series. Um, and yeah, since we last talked about it, I have actually watched it again, because for a while it was on Amazon Prime, I'm not sure if it still is. Um, but... Well,
2: I'd watch it again
1: as well. Oh,
0: okay. Well, how do you feel about it now? Because we were both pretty down on it, I think, when, when kind of looking back on it years ago. Um, um, what do you think I, now? Um,
1: I, I haven't really changed my opinion that much. I think... Um, <laughs> there's always a nostalgic element for me. I always remember, whenever we talk about these films, I always remember watching them the first time around, and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell was a film that was on quite a lot when I was watching these things back in the early mid-80s. It always seemed to be on. One of the ones, like Dracula Lady 1972, that was always seemed to be on. Um, so I did see it a lot then. I, I loved it then, of course, because now, to me, it's got a slightly, because everybody's in it's it's so old. You know, and looks, and you kind of know that this is the hammer coming towards the end of its time. Peter Cushing looks kind of still amazing, but well, this is
0: the only Frankenstein film that he made after his wife had died. Yes,
1: and I think you can tell that he looks very gaunt and, and mm. sort of. But so does he kind of everybody. Everybody else looks sort of Bernard Lee's in it. I, I don't even know where Bernard Lee actually speaks. Does he? He does.
0: He literally has no dialogue. Um, one of the sad things about it, I find, is that it does have a great cast. But yeah. they're almost entirely underused or poorly used. Um, well, there's an actor called Charles Lloyd
1: Pack who's in a lot of Hammer films. Yeah. He's played Mass 2 and I think he's in the first Dracula and he's in Cake of the Zombies. Um, and he's in it and he's a wonderful actor, but he just, he looks kind of so old and he, he doesn't do very much. And, he's
0: got about two scenes, yeah.
1: Yeah, and he, the, the violin playing Professor and... Um, and there's something kind of as well uh, see i think one of the problems with hammer is they didn't quite know how to move into the 1970s when after films like night of the living dead had been made and the exorcist and stuff like that the films were becoming more gruesome and more kind of explicit and hammer didn't really know how to do that so they just had just gore for the sake of it so there's a scene where charles lloyd pack's head is top-of-his-head sliced off, and Peter Cushing's taking out his brain and stuff like
2: no.
1: that. And there's also a kind of a subplot where...
0: Well, we should say that for people who don't know the film, uh, this is the, the film in which... I mean, the, the continuity across the Hammer Frankenstein Frankenstein's films is fairly loose anyway. But, I mean, there's a couple of them where it looks at the end like he's going to die, or he's died, but then then they make another film anyway. Yeah. In this film, the movie opens and we find that it basically follows a character played by Shane Bryant, who's a medical student, I think, or a doctor, he may be a doctor, who gets a job working in an asylum. And it turns out that one of the inmates is Baron Frankenstein, who is actually this uh, guy's idol. He's a man who studied Frankenstein's writing and methods. Um, And he thinks that Frankenstein is this kind of notorious kind of criminal figure... He uh, Shane Bryant's character, who's was it? Is his name Doctor Simon Helder, or is that Simon? Yeah, I think it is Simon Helder, yeah. Yeah. So um, I get mixed up because there's also Simon Ward who plays a doctor in Frankenstein and the monster from. Oh, uh, sorry, Frankenstein must be destroyed. Um, yeah. Anyway, so he he holds up Baron Frankenstein as uh, an idol and wants to emulate what he's done, and then finds himself working alongside. Baron Frankenstein, who's basically officially an inmate in this asylum, but is actually has inveigled himself into a position of trust and is working with the patients in a in a more kind of medical role, and in fact is kind of secretly experimenting on them and continuing the work that he used to do um, in in somewhat changed form. Um, and it's it's an interesting setup, and I think it's. Um, you know, it's good to point out the, the the positive things about the movie. It looks really nice. It's photographed by Brian Probin, who also photographed uh, the Satanic Rites of Dracula and parts of Terrence Malick's Badlands. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that's true. It was him and Tak Fujimoto with the two DPs on that movie. I don't quite know what the story is. I believe Probin was an Australian, um, you know, uh, emigre. But I could be wrong about that. Anyway, it, so it looks nice. It's got a James Bernard score, which is decent as well. It's one of the last horror films, one, one of the last Hammer films to have that. Um, and it's got a really distinguished cast. But as we you know, it, it's it's not just the names we mentioned, but it's also Patrick Troughton um, uh, and several others. Um Madeline Smith, Madeleine Smith who, who's another one who doesn't say anything because she's playing a mute, and that feels like a, a wasted opportunity again. Um, even though I think she's very good, and she, and and considering that her character is without voice, she is she manages to make it quite an interesting character. I think oh, she's very
1: she's very good. But well, there's there's a subplot there. Are we allowed to kind of say what what why she? Is mute. What's happened to her? Yeah,
0: That's I'm sure. I think we can. Yeah, yeah.
1: Was raped. Uh, Wasn't she raped by her own father? Uh,
0: that yes. Well, her, she is she the daughter of John Stratton, who's the the guy who runs the asylum.
1: Stratton, who was, who is was the um head of the asylum. Yeah. And Peter Cushing has got the run of the place it's because the 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 head, the the chief John Stratton character, couldn't care less about the inmates of this asylum. He's quite prepared to let Peter Cushionk after them. He's, he's always going off with dolly birds and stuff and um, mm. and he doesn't meet a particularly gruesome fate at the end. And uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but that kind of... Uh, I didn't really like that part of it very much. That was just a bit too complex, I think, that sort of... No, also... it, it, it,
0: it's a kind of a deeply traumatic element that's thrown into the movie and uh, without there being enough room for it to be explored properly. It, it,
1: it's just there to be...
0: And also it's happened to... I mean, it's not happened to a mute character. It's made this character mute, but she doesn't even get the opportunity to try to talk about it because she's mute. Um, You know, so it it all kind of feels quite misjudged in that way. Um,
1: It is. It just seems unpleasant and there's no real reason for it. But Peter Cushing knows, you see, that the director of the asylum has done this, that John Stratton has done this, so that's how he's able to... And you know, he's sort of blackmailing yeah. the head, so that's how he's able to. I know, I just I, I kind of like it because I just like that sort of thing. And it is Peter Cushing, He's brilliant and everything, and this he, great cat and his hammer.
0: Yeah, now no, Cushing cat, is great, and there are some very kind of moving moments and moving lines, which apparently were more or less ad libbed or even written by Cushing himself, yeah. that, that kind of connect it to the, the well, it, it kind of resonates with the longevity of the Frankenstein series and the Hammer uh, brand in general. You know, kind of... Um, it, it's about time having passed and and, and the uh, the Baron is kind of looking wistfully back at the things that he did when he was younger. Um, yes,
1: the burnt hands which he had in the previous film. You see, the previous one, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, is so great. That, that really is a good film and mm. it works really well. Um, that... This one just kind of feels, uh, it's not as good, and so it's a bit of a disappointment. And, and again, it's a second-hand feel to it. It's set in an asylum, and Frankenstein must be destroyed. It's set partly in an asylum, and Revenge of Frankenstein is sort of set a bit in the sort of yeah, world, sort yeah. of place where all these ill people are, and Frankenstein's using them as an experiments. And, um,
2: this sort of,
0: um... and I suppose we should mention the actual monster from Hell. Um, which is kind of the least interesting of the different creations which the the Baron has made over the course of the movies. Um, it's played by Dave Prouse of Darth Vader fame, but oh, it's Darth basically R- it's a it's it's a fairly mute, brutish ape-like creature, isn't it? Um well, yeah,
1: I... it's supposed to be. I mean, it doesn't look anything like a human being. It's supposed to be supposed to be a you know this this brute man who died trying to escape or something, and if they want no, he, he looks too much like a man in a costume. Yeah. yeah. It's not very convincing.
0: There's not a lot of humanity to him, and therefore, and, 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 you know, he can, he does say a couple of words, but he can't really articulate, Um and he's got this kind of very inflexible makeup as well. Um You know, so in a way, Cushing doesn't have a lot to play off. No. Um, you know...
1: You see, "There's one scary scene. Oh, well, I thought it was quite scary, where the monster comes alive, and he's got a big, big kind of piece of broken glass in his hand or something." And and
0: yes, that is a good scene. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. On the whole, it just kind
1: of feels like everybody's slightly at the end of their tether, and they're slightly going through the motions. They don't quite know what to do, and the, the Frankenstein series has definitely run its course now. Um, and there's nothing really new to do, and it's so it's just the same old story kind of thing.
2: Um, yeah
0: um, so that's a shame. I I guess we can't wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, I think well,
1: no, I think it's worth watching. I think there's good things in it.
0: Yes, but it's not satisfying, no, I mean, is it?
1: All all the Hammer elements are there: the, the score and the cast and everything, and the production values. It's all. It's just compared to what Hammer had done previously. I think it's not as good, mm. and there's something sad about it. It's just. Everybody just looks so old. Looks so old and tired and haggard, and and it's like Terence Fisher's last film as well, isn't
0: it? So... Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. And...
1: But I did, like when I was eleven years old. So that's.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know what I I realized just now because we were talking about Barbara Shelley the other week, whose death we um you know you told me about. Not I conveyed that sad news on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, the Frankenstein series is is one of the only areas of of Hammer or of British horror at the time that Shelley is not involved with at all, and uh, I really I mean there are some strong female characters in some of the Frankenstein films like the character that Eunice Gayson played in Revenge of Frankenstein and, and that, but um, I do find that over the course of the Frankenstein films they are lacking some really strong female characters to put as a counterpoint to Cushing. And yes. I would really have loved if, if Barbara Shelley had, had got in there as, you know, a, a female scientist of some kind or, or something, but um, was not well, to Max, be. She's well, more Max, or less retired well, by that point. There's
1: a good actress called Maxine Audley in Frankenstein must be destroyed, but she doesn't get much to do. Oh, yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah. Sure.
1: And Hazel Court, of
2: course, is
1: in is the other fine actress in the first one. But again, it's not given. Well, I didn't. I don't count her
0: because her, as Kirsty said on this podcast when we talked about it, her version of Elizabeth is very, uh, to, for want of a better word, very wet, isn't she? She's very lacking in awareness and her own kind of agency. Hazel Court is very good. Um, Hazel Court is Very good. Yeah. But it's not a great character. Um. Even though, you know, I think she's fine at what she does, but at the same time, she's... Uh, both of the female characters in that movie are kind of there to be walked over by Frankenstein in different ways. Um, and uh, I I think it's a shame that we we didn't have a, a stronger female character emerging later in the series. Although, I, like I say, I do think uh, Eunice Gayson is very good. Um, and I do think... Despite the title, Frankenstein Created Woman has some interesting stuff in it for um, Susan Denberg to do. I think it's but, interesting because it's a bit more...
1: It's a different kind of approach. He's not making a monster from dead bodies. He's, he's making a creature in a different way. So
0: Yeah, and he's more benevolent in that film. You know, that's one of the things that's interesting time about
1: time being Completely ruthless and villainous to being just a misguided scientist, depending on which film it was. In Frankenstein, must be destroyed. He's completely ruthless. He is absolutely the villain. Yeah. And in this monster from hell, he's sort of... He's slightly more sympathetic. He's, again,
2: ruthless, but...
0: Again, quite... the sympathy seems to come from the fact that just that he's kind of old and a bit hapless. Yes. It's um,
2: quite... But he, he does have a great wig.
0: <laughs> that's true. And, you know, I think the wig is... Uh, either it's the same one or similar to the one that he was wearing in the movie that our podcast takes its name from, uh, ah. 1973's And Now The Screaming Starts. So. Well, I
1: wouldn't be if it was the same wig, because, <laughs> you know, why spend money on two different wigs when you can use the same one? It's a bit of a Harper Marx thing, but it's, you no, know, he looks good, he looks good in
0: it. He does. Um, OK, so I think we've probably shared everything we can say about Frankenstein, The Monster From Hell. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interesting, but you know, not the best. Um, it's,
1: but best, it's worth watching.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. If you want to see Hammer films, then it's, it's it's interesting to see where they were at that time and what they were doing towards the end of their run.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, no, it definitely is. But um, um, you know, I I, I kind of as an entertainment experience, it's somewhat underwhelming. Um, it is a best. Sadly, an artistic experience. But you know, there we go. Thank you, Howard. We've rediscovered Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Who knows what will come out of the bag of death next time we open it. But that was good fun. <laughs> so now that we've done that, let's just um, wrap up the, the podcast for this week. Um, normally, at the end of the show, Howard, we uh, we recommend something for, to the listeners, which is easy for them to find. Um yeah and it's usually horror, but not always, because we're not always in the mood, or sometimes there's just something which we really want people to watch that's outside the genre. I believe you've been watching a lot of Talking Pictures TV lately. Uh,
1: Yes, I've been watching. What I want to recommend, and it's such a big part of my childhood that I can't, you know, um, not mention it, is uh, Talking Pictures on Saturday morning. They're kind of recreating Saturday morning pictures, the cin- which I never went to because we didn't have a cinema here. But one of the things they're showing is Flash Gordon
2: conquers the universe with Larry Buster Crab right. and Middleton as Emperor
1: Ming. And this was on all the time in the summer holidays uh, when I was, you know, at school age. Um, even though it was about 50 years old then, the BBC, the BBC would show Flash Gordon, or Champion of the Wonder Horse, or a French thing. It was called The Flashing Blade. So right. I couldn't care. Those two, but I love Flash Gordon. I loved it then, and I love it now. I love it now more because it's so quaint and so charming. Uh, and one of Emperor Ming's lieutenants, or lieutenants, is called uh, Lieutenant Thong. <laughs>
2: right. Um,
1: absolutely great that there's a character called Thong. <laughs> <laughs> ming and they live on mongo but it's great i mean i <laughs> not, not laughing at, you know I'm, I'm not making fun of this thing at all i think it's great i think for its time it's remarkable what they did all right so, it looks very, very cheap to us now to modern audiences because we're oh, so sophisticated so but
0: for that's, the, that's, the that's, listeners who might not know this was like a, a movie serial from the 30s i think is that right Howard? and they would it's in like 10 minute episodes
1: 20 minute episodes and it was shown yeah. one week for about 12 weeks in the summer as part of the whole, because in those days you'd have a, a B-movie and the main feature and the newsreel, and and you'd have um, a serial as well. And they're all sort, the BBC showed loads as King of the Rocket Men uh, and Nyoka of the Tiger Women or someone that I particularly enjoy. Right. Uh, and Flash, the Flash, Gordon there were several Flash Gordons and they all had Larry Buster. Crab- it's just great. I just it's, it's nostalgia overload for me because I remember it. Been in the summer holidays and everything back in the early eighties, uh, but I just think it's—we talk about fun, don't we? F- things got to be fun. We want, to, especially now, yeah. what we've been going through mm. this last year. Well, this is fun. This is fun of the highest order. If if you can get into it, and if you can accept the uh, <laughs> the meagre budget and the rather sort of. Um, sort of, sort of low-budget special effects, then uh, I think it's great. I, I, I really enjoy it. I'm really enjoying it. And there's a cliffhanger at the end of it. I've always loved cliffhangers, and I've always loved things that had cliffhangers, and it may be because of this. There's always a cliffhanger where Flash Gordon dies, and then the next week he doesn't. He escapes. He's fine. So um, Right. And it's great. Had, yeah.
0: well, no, uh,
1: oh.
0: As often, Howard, I am convinced by... The, the sheer wonderful torrent of your enthusiasm. Um, and we'll put a link about that show in the show notes. I trust we have several episodes left to enjoy.
1: I think there's about nine more. Right. have right. uh, the, the walking robots today. I think they're called Annihilatons. <laughs> right. Uh, and they sort of, they slightly speed it up to make it look more robotic. Right. Which
0: I didn't. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So, right, that's. Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe. Highly recommended. Great. Okay. Um, well, my recommendation is a little more in our in our usual horror line, although not entirely. It's Bone Tomahawk, which is on Amazon Prime at the moment in the UK. It's a Western from five years ago, starring Kurt Russell and Patrick Wilson. Um, and it's really, really good. But uh, without... Giving it too much away. The reason why I want to recommend it on this show is that because it's also terrifying and gruesome. Um, it it might be too much of a stretch to describe it as a horror movie, and you know, for long stretches of it, it's basically the searchers. It's four horsemen, four um, American white men um, traveling out from a small frontier town in the Old West to uh, attempt a rescue mission but uh, and you know there's there's lots of the usual western tropes of uh, it's about the men's relationships it's about the journey um, it's about survival but it's extremely tense and towards the end it gets extremely violent there's a couple of moments which are hard to sit through um, uh, but you know entirely more or less justified um, it, it basically goes very dark very very dark but it's a really successful um, attempt at, at that uh, mixture of genres um, and it, it's quite a long film, it's longer than two hours but it doesn't feel long or it didn't to me, it's, it's very gripping and it's really well acted and well shot it's the directorial debut of uh, writer-director S. Craig Zahler and, um, yeah, based on this, I want to go and watch his other films. He's made two more films since, and uh, it, it's just well done on, on all levels. But it's particularly great to see Kurt Russell. In a way, it's, it's the kind of ideal Kurt Russell vehicle, because even though he's not done a lot of that genre, he's a great presence in the Western, but he's also got the kind of genre... Um, history with his relationship with John Carpenter um, and, uh, and and movies like The Thing. And it's just fantastic to see him in a movie that kind of combines the best of all his particular skills as an actor and is just a great story um, and really enjoyable. So that's on Amazon Prime UK at the moment. Anyone who's a, list, who's a subscriber to that service can watch it for free. Um, and I
1: if you want to see a horror western there is always Billy the Kid versus Dracula
0: I've never seen that
1: With John Carradine, I don't know if it'll ever be shown again but I have seen it and I have also seen Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter
0: <laughs> right, okay
1: <laughs> that's a good film and, uh,
0: I haven't I've seen, seen either of those I but suspect Westerns... I suspect they go to um, support the, the argument that Mixing horror and the Western is a difficult act, not easy to pull off. Uh, yes, uh, uh,
1: I yes, I don't think they quite pull it off. <laughs> uh, oh dear.
0: So they're, they're
1: trying to pull off, but they don't pull it off.
0: Oh, that's a shame. But you know, oh. there are some good ones. There's there's Catherine Piccolo's Near Dark, and oh. there's there's this yeah. movie. So, um, yes. yeah, I was really pleased to have finally watched that. It's taken a while. Um, and I, for for my money, of the two Kurt Russell westerns made in twenty fifteen, uh, or released in twenty fifteen, this is the best one. Um, the other one was Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, and uh, I I was a, a bit annoyed with that film. that I don't. I don't... It, it's very very good in places, but it's it it could have been great, but it's so overlong. It really really damages it. Um, so, so I would prefer this one on the whole alright well that brings us to the end of the show for this week thank you so much for your company Howard well
1: thank you it's been a pleasure
0: it's been an absolute pleasure it always is thank you for listening listeners and the show is going to be back next week when we're going to finally be talking about something we've hinted at for a long time Kirsty's true love and one of mine too the TV series Hannibal so join us for that Thanks, everybody, and take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
7: You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts, produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited, presented by Stella Gaynor, Ian Winterton, Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, and Howard Whittock, with special guest Stephen Volk. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music, and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at And now Pod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.